Hello, I'm Dr. Eric Topol, Editor-in-Chief of Medscape, and I'm really thrilled today to have with me Dr. John Reed, one of the leading physician investigators in the country, who has been the Chief Executive Officer of the Sanford Burnham Institute here in La Jolla, California for the past 11 years. And I've had the chance to be on your scientific advisory board, and we're friends. It's so wonderful to have a chance to interview you and also to switch roles since you just interviewed me last year. So it's a really big time in your career, John, and I know you're moving on from Sanford Burnham and moving to Roche. So tell us about, uh, I'd like to hear maybe about your looking back first. Okay. About 20-plus years at an institute that you really built up. What has that been like? Well, I I've actually was there 21 years, and I, I, I didn't come to really build anything originally. I just came to do great science. Uh, La Jolla is such a great community for that, and you know, it's become one of the top three or so biotech clusters in the world. I wanted to translate discoveries out of the laboratory into the clinic, and it was very clear that to do that in terms of what I work on, you had to have a company somewhere in between, and I uh, was very anxious to try to work with the biotech community, the venture capital community, to take the discoveries and get them on a trajectory towards product development for patients. And so, you know, within the first few years of coming here, like any other self-respecting scientist in San Diego, I started a biotech company, and we were able to get several medicines into the clinic that uh, regulate the process of programmed cell death, or apoptosis, which is what my own research is focused on. And we got a drug through phase, uh, up to phase three for liver protection for patients with chronic hepatitis C virus. And we also got uh, some medicines for cancer that help to kill cancer cells uh, through phase one into early phase two. And then Pfizer bought us at that point. So that was my first uh, entree into entrepreneurism and, and trying to, you know, to take discoveries that are funded by NIH research and that sort of thing, but move them on a path where they can help patients. And there's really no way to do that without a commercial sponsor. Well, you've been one of the most cited researchers in the world on the whole uh, cell death, apoptosis and uh, certainly in, in cancer biology. So you stayed with the, and you still have been maintained the lab for these 20 plus years. At that's Central right. Program, right. It's been the only thing that's kept me sane, I think, as <laughs> I've you know, led this institution, which has been a great honor and privilege. But you know, keeping the laboratory was very important in a number of ways. Uh, one, in terms of just where my passion had always been and just being close to the science, but it also made it a lot easier to lead in a nonprofit environment where, you know, our faculty don't have to do anything, right? They don't have to listen to anybody. And so the only way you really move the organization and get people to cooperate and collaborate is to lead by example and by persuasion, not by edict. So by being uh, one, of the, one of the scientists, a person in there who has his sleeves rolled up, who's fighting for grants, who's publishing papers, and who's, you know, trying to garner the respect of his colleagues that way, it made, it, it made me a lot more, I think, credible and able to really bring the organization together much more easily than if I'd been uh, viewed as an administrator who sort of sits behind his desk and is not really aware of the day-to-day -day realities of what it's like to run a lab. And how many uh, scientists, uh, uh, how many principal investigators at Sanford Burnham? About 90 so-called principal investigators or faculty, about 1,200 employees overall now right. at three different sites. And what was it 20-plus years ago when you Oh, came? yeah, it was a pretty small place. Um, it's kind of funny how I even found it. I was, uh, my wife and I were in a I'm getting ready to go back and do now with my new job what I said I what what I did in reverse what I did then but I was in Philadelphia at that time it was a cold February night my wife and I were saying when are we going to go somewhere warmer and <laughs> I found, you found I, the I, right I, place. I found uh, the institute in the classified ads and came out and just fell in love with the place and uh, for its entrepreneurial spirit and lack of bureaucracy and 
really just get good science done, great, great environment. It allows you to focus on science without distractions of other things that sometimes uh, get in the way of universities and big hospital systems, that kind of thing. So it was a great, uh, great environment. The science really thrived. And along the way, uh, you know, as often happens in science, if you excel as a scientist, they sometimes start asking you to lead things. And so I was asked to be first a program director and then a center director and then a scientific director and finally president and CEO along the way. And uh, it just was a great set of learning experiences, a great opportunity to take an organization which uh, was kind of a you know small, uh, a little bit mom and pop organization and try to come up with a new research model and, uh, and see where we could take it. So, uh, you know, I think we've been reasonably successful and it's been a great experience. Out of the 90 um, senior scientists, faculty, how many uh, are physician investigators? Uh, I think about 15% mm -hmm. or so have uh, MDs or MD PhDs. Yeah, 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 that's great. Now, if you were to say this is the one thing I'm most proud of over this tenure at Stanford Burnham, what, what might it be? Well, boy, that's a tough uh, question. The, you know, there were so many different discoveries that came out of the laboratory over the years that helped to identify the basic machinery that regulates cell lifespan, program cell death, and, and you know, I was able to enjoy this sort of status of a highly cited scientist because that field became so interesting back in its day. It, at one time, it became the fastest growing area of biomedical research as people discovered this whole cell death machinery and realized that it was important in virtually every disease we can think of. One of my residents when I was at UC San Francisco, you must know, Stanley Korsmeyer. Oh, absolutely, yes. And yeah. he, I guess, was very active in this field before his untimely death. He was one of the great, uh, death, great right? contributors of the field who, uh, who, who passed away, unfortunately, from lung cancer. Mm -hmm. He was never a smoker. But, uh, yeah, he and I were very uh, friendly co collaborators and competitors. And, in fact, uh, with respect to that company I mentioned I started, um, at the time we were really pretty uh, fierce competitors. But when there was this opportunity to bring all our technology together and try to harness that know-how and the targets, et cetera, towards therapeutic game, we came together as collaborators and joined forces under the same umbrella of this company mm -hmm. and you know, advised the company and helped uh, move technology out of both of our laboratories as well as other people in the field to push it towards the clinic. Now, along the way, didn't you have an intersection with Roche with one, another um, drug or something else you were working on, or was this the very first time well, recently? Well, yeah, there has a very tortuous path has led uh, me to Roche in the sense that one of the advanced cancer medicines now in their phase three pipeline, I have my fingerprints on a bit of that, <laughs> and it goes back to work we did in our laboratory years ago on a, uh, a survival gene, an anti-epiptotic gene called BCL2, oh, right, involved right. in B-cell lymphomas and leukemias. I happened to have uh, done my, um, part of my dissertation and some of my postdoctoral work on that. And I thought BCL2 was your middle name. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, it, it, it became so uh, for many years. But anyway, we discovered its involvement in one of the, in the most common type of leukemia, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and did uh, a variety of seminal experiments using various genetic manipulations to show how important that gene was for the survival of the cancer cells and particularly for mechanisms of chemoresistance. You know, why is it difficult to kill uh, the cells when they become refractory to chemotherapy? That then led to a uh, prototype medicine we created in the laboratory using synthetic DNA, using this anti-code or anti-sense technology with short pieces of synthetic DNA to try to silence the gene. And that was licensed to a San Diego biotechnology company at the time and was evolved all the way through phase three for CLL, chronic leukemia, 
showed promising results, but not quite across the goal line. So that was sort of part of the backdrop. And then along the way, we started a small molecule drug discovery approach against the same target. That became part of this company I mentioned. And uh, they then were uh, acquired by Pfizer, which then, uh, in, through a torturous set of, <laughs> of, of things, the technology ended up going to Abbott and then to Genentech and now to the Roche pipeline. <laughs> wow. So some work that, you know, I started, it was literally 20 years ago, Eric, is now in a phase three drug <laughs> candidate in the Roche pipeline for CLL and showing very exciting results. Oh. And I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be a new weapon we have to, to fight leukemia in the near future. But at 20 years and a very complex path, it shows the perseverance it takes to bring forward new medicines with truly new mechanisms. Yeah. And it also shows the importance of collaboration and partnership because this project has been in the hands and been touched by so many talented scientists and physicians and, and drug development specialists along the way as it's finally now and what we hope is going to be its last step in the journey to FDA approval. Well, we sure hope so. Now, you've been a model of this kind of academic and then industry partnership. Uh, and as you said, uh, it's not so easy to get a drug that really works out there. Um, what do you think now? There's a lot of consternation about the NIH's role in drug mm -hmm. development, and you've been on that side, and, and it's worked very effectively. How does what's the optimal way in which uh, um, institutes, universities interact with uh, life science industry to propel right. uh, useful therapeutics? Well, I think at least on the early stages of drug discovery, that's a great role for universities and research institutes to be becoming more active. Uh, traditionally, that wasn't done at all in those environments. We would discover targets. We would validate them in animal models. We could sometimes validate them through studies in, in, with using patient-oriented research approaches. But to actually take the, the early steps towards developing a therapeutic was really not the bailiwick of academia. In the last decade or so, thanks to some of the NIH initiatives, a variety of academic centers have now started to establish the, the basic infrastructure for small molecule drug discovery, for example, the ability to do high-throughput screening, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. get chemicals that modulate the target that you can verify in animal models, uh, proof of concept that there's a path forward. And I think at least for academia, there's a great role to do that, to take these early steps to what we call chemically validate targets. Can you actually modulate them with a chemical? If you can do that in an important disease area, then the rest of the pharma companies will jump Just in it up, and, huh? and they'll pick it up from there yeah, and get yeah. things going. But there's so many targets that are considered high risk or not sufficiently validated, et cetera, so the pharma companies don't take a chance on them. This type of activity where the early drug discovery is going on in academia is starting to really create the opportunity to validate more targets that then pharma can jump on and do what they do great, make very robust pharma pharmaceutically well-behaved medicines that uh, will move into the clinic. Gotcha. Now, uh, before we go to the next chapter in your mm -hmm. incredible career, I wanted to touch on um, th some things that I find striking about your triathlete <laughs> yeah. world and, you know, you, you get up early in the mm -hmm. morning. Can you kind of give us a little insight to your lifestyle? Yeah, I'm I'm a, a bit of an oddball, I guess. But the um, well, first of all, I, I get up very early every morning, typically three thirty or four. Where does that's that come that's from? That's kind of early. That's kind of early. I always say it's my most productive hours of the day. I don't stay up late, but I uh, but I get up early. What time do you usually go to bed? I try to get to bed, you know, nine thirty ish okay. or something like that. You know, ten if uh, uh, that's not a early. lot of sleep. But you know, it's sleep you know, makes you weak. That's I know. right. That's right. You know, thank God for his coffee. <laughs> 
But um, that started actually when I was going to be a surgeon. So I was going to be, uh, I started off my career, I was going to be a surgeon. And of course, we pride ourselves on being the first in the hospital and the last to leave. And uh, so I can remember coming home bushed from the uh, days in the clinic and still had my reading to do. And uh, rather than falling asleep in my textbook, I started going to bed about 9.30 and then getting up at 3.30, get a couple hours reading in, and then get in the hospital by 5.36. And I started that routine and have uh, really stuck with it ever you've, since. You've been in the groove, huh? I've been in the groove, yeah. <laughs> it really came in handy, too, when we had children because then my wife gave me the bottle feeding at 3 in the morning, you know. So I was going to be up anyway. But uh, And then along the way, I... Um, I, I've always been a runner, was a cross-country track runner, and then along the way got into triathlons and uh, have been able to enjoy this with my oldest son, who's gotten very, mm. very engaged in it and was doing it competitively so in you, college. Will you do Ironman things? I, I do uh, an Ironman every year and wow. often one or two half Ironman, uh, which is the, uh, you know, the Ironman is a 140.6 mile and the half is a 70.3. Now, so how, love, how do you, you know? how do you train? You go out at three thirty in the morning. Uh, yeah, it? well, I work for a couple of hours, then I go out and do a little exercise. But well, I, what would I, be I your normal routine? Um, your, let's normal, say you're getting just, ready for the yeah, Ironman. Well, just you know, um, normal routine, just Monday through Friday. The work days, I'm uh, I just doing an hour of swimming or biking or running. Uh, the weekends, and I try to do some longer things. Where as we're moving up to an Ironman, we're trying to do a hundred miles on the bike. Uh, on, on Saturday and then maybe run uh, 15 miles on Sunday and things like this. So, How long is the swim for that? 2.4 miles. Oh, my gosh. All that. So, I mean, that's just to finish that is a feat. And you, you've been doing that. Do you ever have any feeling in your joints or anything ever given you know, away? Knock on wood, you know, I get a lot of sore, sore muscles and tendons, but the joints have been holding out. But, it, you know, for me it's been uh, sort of my escape from things, that, the training, because uh, I, it's just great thinking time for me mm. when you're, you know, I, I just get lost in my thoughts about science and, 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 the, and the institute and things like this, and I'm working on things mentally. So while uh, you're on that 100-mile bike ride, you're coming right. up I'm, with the know, next I'm, discovery? I'm, I'm, discover I'm planning I the see. next experiment or I see. <laughs> writing the next grant in my mind. Or <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, so now you made this big, big decision in your career, and this is a tough one, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so what are your thoughts about this? You know, that you obviously have been a legend here at Sanford Burnham and in San Diego and in the whole science. You could stay on there, mm -hmm. of course, but you decided to do something very different in another country, in fact. So what was going on in your mind? Well, I think two things. And one's a bit of a, it's sort of the, a juncture in one's life where uh, after 11 years in the CEO role, we had just completed a very successful 10-year plan at the Institute. And we're working towards the next 10-year plan. And, you know, as you're going through that process, you're thinking, well, you know, am I going to do this for the next 10 years or am I going to explore something else? I was very proud of what our team accomplished, but also thinking that, might be the right time to let somebody else come in and, and, and run the institution and try to take it to the next level. So that was kind of going in my mind. Uh, personally, our kids are now allowed out of the home, and so we're empty nesters, and that was sort of going on in terms of thinking about if we're going to explore something else. Uh, we love California. It's, it's hard to beat in terms of the weather and whatnot, but uh, was was kind of receptive in that regard. So when Roche came knocking on the door, I, I was receptive to having a conversation as I learned more about the company uh, and I've you know I've known what they were doing to some extent over the years but I hadn't really dug in and studied I, I just became more and more enamored you know they were arguably the first big farmer to really embrace the concept of personalized healthcare yes, yes. because they have both the world's largest diagnostics company and a you know major commitment to molecular diagnostics uh, married with one of the world's largest pharmaceutical 
companies. And so this concept of companion diagnostics and biomarkers and matching the therapy to the patients based on genomics, proteomics, other sorts of things, is a very much resonates with the company. It's very much uh, what they've embraced and have committed to as a business strategy. And so, oh, the only the only company, pharma company, that's had purchased sequencing companies, and right. of course has a relationship with Genentech. And as you say, it's really been out there in terms of pushing this indiv- individualized medicine that's frontier. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's if you great. think it, it goes back at least to uh, 1991 when they acquired PCR technology from Cetus, if you remember, that really made oh, the yeah, whole molecular yeah. diagnostics field possible. So they've been willing to make uh, big bets and take big risks on technologies and, you know, have embraced this concept that you've talked about so much in your own writings of personalized health care. And I was thinking about, you know, where what's the platform from which to really influence what personalized health care is going to mean in reality? And Roche seemed like a great platform from which to do that, you know, to be able to help uh, work with physicians like yourself to define what the next products of the future are going to look like, uh, you know, like a, a diagnostic married with a therapeutic for the right patient, the right medicine, the right time. It's very exciting to be able to do it from that side of the, of the street as opposed to in the more of an academic hospital side. So I look well, forward to working with people with, like yourself. With respect to big bets, they didn't have to make a big bet with you. This is an <laughs> incredible catch for uh, Roche and for the life science industry. That's, I mean, it's, it's fantastic to see you on that side. And certainly, uh, I'm sure all the academic community looks forward to the opportunity to collaborate with you. And we're going to miss you sorely here in San Diego, but we hope you'll come back and visit, maybe when you're training for your triathlons or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be in San Diego frequently. We have so much great work going on here in the life science area with uh, one of the largest biotech clusters here. So we, like lots of large pharma companies, Roche is very dependent on interactions with other centers of innovation to help inform new ideas about targets, to in-license new product opportunities. You know, we supplement our own internal pipeline through what we can in-license from partners, uh, technology platforms, et cetera. So, no, I'm, I'm sure I will uh, be here on business, if not for personal well, reasons, well, that, uh, on a regular basis. That's great. We sure look forward to that. And so just want to congratulate you for your extraordinary career for all the years at Sanford Burnham and all the work that you've done in the cancer biology space and wish you the very best uh, in your time forward at Roche and uh, in Switzerland. So um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for joining uh, Medscape uh, one-on-one. We've really uh, had a fun time hearing the story uh, of John Reed, and we'll look forward to a lot more of these in the future. Thank you. Mm -hmm.